So we'll dive into our text now. We'll be in Acts chapter 4. Uh, we'll be in verses 32 through 37. Uh, Acts 4, verse 32 through 37. So if you have a Bible, you can turn there. If you don't have a Bible, feel free. There's a Bible uh, close to you in the, the pew in front of you, or you can just watch the screen because we'll have it there as well. Um, and so that, that's where we're going to be mainly. Uh, I'll jump around to a couple of scriptures here and there, uh, but you can stay in Acts 4. But, but here's the deal. So what we have in Acts 4 is this. We have a, a summary narrative of the church in Jerusalem, right? Uh, but this isn't the, the first summary narrative where, where Luke kind of describes what was going on during that time. This is the second one. So the first one um, is actually in Acts chapter 2, which many of you may be familiar with. So we're actually going to go to Acts chapter 2 first. Uh, in verses 42 through 47, right? And here's why it's important, because we look at this, the Jerusalem church, right? We hold this up as the standard, don't we? We hold this up as the model, right? And so what we want to do is we want to get a full picture of what things were like in the early church, all right? So we're going to get some context now in Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47. Here's what it says. They devoted themselves to apostles' teaching, and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all of the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved, right? So, so listen, so hope you don't mind. We, we're going we're gonna to break this down, right, and really get a look at what things were really like. And so we're going to look at first, what did these people do, right? What, what are the things that they did? What, what did they engage in? What were the, the activities that, that, that marked their life? And so here's what we see. Um, they were, number one, devoted, right? So real quick, that word devoted in the Greek means to constantly give attention to. They were constantly engaged in these things. The first one was um, the apostles' teaching. Constantly dedicated and giving attention to what the apostles were saying and to what they were teaching. Secondly, they were dedicated, devoted to fellowship, right? The Greek word there is koinonia, which means the sharing of of uh, things and activities. And so we actually kind of get a, a window into what that, that koinonia, what that fellowship looked like with the, the next two things that they mentioned. It's actually describing the kind of fellowship that they were engaged in. And we see that they were, they were doing what? They were breaking bread. So that, you know, you think about the Lord's Supper, right? Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. But it also, no doubt, also involved them sharing just ordinary meals together. So we're there, they were breaking bread. Uh, they were also praying, which no doubt also meant worshiping. So you have a group of people dedicated, devoted, giving constant attention to the disciples' teaching, uh, to breaking bread together, to being together, to praying together, and to worshiping together. This is what they were doing on a constant and a continual basis. And then we also see that they were generous because we see that they would sell their possessions so that they could meet the needs of the folks that were around them. So that's the things that they did. Those are their, their activities. And so 
Now let's look at the things that they experienced as a result of those activities. It says that they experienced awe and wonder at what they saw the Lord doing in their midst. It says they experienced joy and, and gladness. And then they experienced growth. The, the Lord added to their number what they were doing and, and what they were experiencing was so attractive that, that people a lot of people were coming and becoming believers during that time. So, so we see what they did and what they experienced. And so now we come to our text in Acts chapter 4, verse 32. And we're going to continue to build on this picture. We're going to continue to, to illustrate and, and behold the type of, of church that kind of sparked this movement. So here's what Acts chapter 4, verse 32 says. It says, and all the believers were... Uh, one in heart and mind, no one claimed that, that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything that they had, right? So the, the thing that they experienced in addition that we learned here in Acts chapter 4 is they were of one heart and mind, right? Um, the, the Greek word can also, you can look at it as, as one heart and soul. So you think about the, the heart and you think about the soul, it's it's the, it's the center uh, in the seat of, man, your thoughts, your passions, your desires, your appetites, your, your affection, every, everything that you, um, man, set out to do, it all starts in the heart. That's where all those things, that's where they lie. That's where, where those things are prevalent. They're prevalent in the heart. And they were of one uh, heart and soul. So basically saying they, the same thing was in each of their hearts. The same thing was driving their, their thoughts, their passion, desires, their appetites, and affections. It was all being driven by the same thing. So two things I'll mention. Um, one thing that it was being driven by is this, uh, this idea that they all knew they needed to be rescued. So, so Jackie, Jackie talked about that. Uh, when she spoke a couple weeks ago, this, this idea of rescue, this idea of being in a hopeless situation and being unable to do anything about it. So, so, um, so they, they knew they needed to be rescued. And so because it talked about real quick a little bit further, it talked about the fact that the apostles with great power uh, continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And so here's why this is significant, that they would that they would preach and teach about the resurrection of Jesus because, understand, these are people that have a keen sense and an awareness of their sin. These are people that were involved in temple worship. So what that means was they, they knew that because of their sin, their sin had to be atoned for. There had to be a price to pay for their sin, and so they would, they would bring animals to sacrifice. And so, number one, the animal itself was costly to them. And then they actually witnessed blood being shed as a result. Something actually had to die in order for their sin to be atoned for. And there also had to be a priest involved that for the atoning of the sin for the people of Israel. This was an ongoing thing. They saw the blood being shed on a regular basis. And it cost them to provide the animal that was being sacrificed. And understand this, so now you have Jesus. 
Jesus being the one that they saw. Jesus being the one who did miracles, who walked and talked amongst them. You have Jesus who many of them saw hanging on the cross. You have Jesus who then was resurrected from the dead, who people walked with and talked with. And now he has ascended into heaven. What is going on here? You kind of get a sense of what they were, they were feeling. And so they were all of one heart and mind. They had been rescued. Because they didn't have to do that anymore because Jesus is now their high priest. And so I wasn't there during that time. So obviously, <laughs> um, so I didn't witness that per se, right? But I'm going to tell you what I have witnessed. I've witnessed the Lord do something for me. We talked about boldness last week, right? So, uh, you know, respectfully, I really don't care what your opinion is of Jesus because I know how he saved my soul. I got a wife and two kids at home whose life is different because he saved me. Because the power that raised him from the dead is the power that has transformed me. So I'm just wondering, is there anyone in the room that has also been rescued and has also been transformed by Jesus? Amen. They were unified. One mind, one heart, one soul because they knew they had all been rescued. And the other thing they were unified by is the fact that they were all submitted to his authority. Where do you see that, Leonard? Well, we see that they, they had sold their possessions in order to give to the needy, right? So they had an understanding that, oh, like the things that I have, the things that, that are in my possession, they're, they're not mine at all. Because check this out, because when you are in a place of rescue, where you're in a place where you are hopeless, you have an understanding of what's most important. So after being saved, they have an understanding of what's most important. And so what's most important is God and his authority in their life. So they look in their possessions, they look at the things that they have, and they have an understanding that, oh, these things aren't mine. These were given to me by him. I am under his authority. So if I'm under his authority, I'm going to seek his opinion as it relates to what I'm going to do with the things that he has given to me. So then once I'm under his authority, now I can, because it's not mine in the first place. So if I have it to give and I have someone who's in need, guess what? Because he cares about them, guess what? I care about them and I'm going to leverage what I have to, to meet their need. So they were under his authority. So you have people of one heart, one mind, and soul. They had been rescued and they were all under his authority. So that's the, the first thing that we see in this chapter four, man, as we look into the early church. So we'll keep going deeper, right? So um, again, verse 33, with power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there were no needy persons among them. And so what we see here, what we're adding, it says, and God's grace was so powerfully at work in the mall. So we're adding grace to what they experienced. They experienced God's grace. God's grace, it says, was in them all. So real quick, when we talk about grace, there's a, there's a definition. There's a two-word definition common when you hear about grace. Anyone, can anyone tell me what the definition of, of grace is? Two words I'm looking for. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Unmerited favor. So y'all, y'all good church folk. Y'all already know what it is. Unmerited favor. This idea that that God has a disposition. He has, he has a posture 
towards us, that man, even in spite of us being sinners, that, that he is going to be, to be kind to us, right? So, but this grace sometimes, we often abuse it because, uh, man, we just feel like, man, that we can use it as an excuse to, to not change or to not mature because God's going to continue to bless us anyway. My favorite phrase is, oh, he knows my heart. He knows my heart. In other words, I'm going to keep doing what I want to do because God knows my heart. Like I'm going to experience his grace, right? So listen, so this, this unmerited favor, it's a thing, right? It, it's, it's part of the definition of grace. Like that's real. But, but when, I, when I read verses like 2 Corinthians chapter 12 where Paul's talking about, listen, man, I've got a thorn in my side. This thing that keeps, that keeps bugging me, it keeps plaguing me, and I've asked the Lord to remove it. But, but here's what the Lord has said. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made, in perf- made perfect in weakness. And I love Paul's response. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weakness so that Christ's power may rest on me. So we're, we're not talking about unmerited favor here. We're talking about God's power. Grace is power, empowerment, right? So John Piper says it like this. Grace refers to an influence or a force or a power or acting of God that works in us to produce real, practical outcomes in people's lives and change our capacities for work, suffering, and obedience. That's what grace is. Grace, it it empowers us to do things, keep that up, to do things that, that we don't have the power to do, right? So let me, let me stop here and focus, right? It says it, says it changed our capacities to, to work, right? So I think about the, the work that God has given me. Like, I just think about, like, even, even the work that he's given me to pastor. Like, I don't have the ability to do the things that this job requires, but I'm able to do it because of God's grace. I think about my, my responsibilities as a husband to my wife, Y'all know that Jesus said that, that I'm supposed to love my wife like Christ loved the church. That's a, that's a high standard, Doc. <laughs> I'll be like, Lord, help. I don't have the ability to do that, but guess what? By God's grace, he empowers me to make it happen. I now have two kids that I got to be a father to, right? So the wife got one, the other, you know, so it's like the, but God gives me grace to, to make it happen. You think about suffering, right? We, none of us likes to suffer, but I've suffered from a few things in my life. But guess what? I look at people and how they interact with life, and I'm like, oh, and they're experiencing something. I'm like, oh, is that taking you out? Because I'm good. Because I have suffered, and by God's grace, he's carried me through some things. And so I've come through on the side stronger and better than I was before. And thank God I'm not the same person 15 years ago because I wouldn't be able to handle the weight of what the Lord has placed on me now. Because God's grace has empowered me, right? And then lastly, I look at this idea of obedience. Lord, help me. Obedience, this this holiness, this this idea that, that we are to be set apart, that we are to be different, that we are not to be like everybody else. And so sometimes there have been times when your boy was at his house in his bed in the fetal position like, Lord, help me. And then I woke up and I was like, oh, I made it. Thank you, Lord. Because I was about to destroy myself, but your grace, come come on, man, you know good and well. You know good and well had it not been for your obedience that you would have taken your own stuff out the game. But because of grace, 
He gives us the grace to obey and to be holy. So this is what we're talking about. And, and here's the thing when it comes to grace. When it comes to, to grace, we have to make a decision. Do we want to live a life that's defined by our power and our strength? Or do we want to live a life defined by the, the power of God? So real quick, quick story. So um, see my time. Okay. Um, quick story. So my former organization, they called me one day. And uh, they had a conference that was coming up, right? And they said, Linda, we want you to be a part of this conference. We want you to play a key role in this conference. It's going to be in Florida. Uh, and to give you the scope of this conference, it was going to be 5,000 people there. And we were, we were planning two years out, right? And, uh, man, I already got a job. I'm already dealing with, with, with ministry in my city and with adults and raising money. And, and I'm like, ah, oh, man, this it's asking a lot because they weren't necessarily trying to pay your boy any more money either, right? So, so they, they, they called me with an assignment. And so, um, but I said, I said yes. So I said yes. And so I'll just tell you one story about something that I experienced. And so uh, the conference was going to be at the World Marriott in Orlando, Florida. We were going to take over the World Marriott. And, um, and so we flew down to prepare. And uh, we took a trip to Disney World. And listen, um, man, this trip to Disney World was amazing because we, we were treated in a way that I had not been treated before, right? So, um, so, so when it came to meeting characters and interacting with characters, like, like we, didn't, we didn't wait in line to meet characters, right? I, I'm, I'm dining with Beauty and the Beast in the Beast Castle. You see what I'm saying? I'm breaking bread with Beast. Beast is right there, Right? Now, he can't really eat. He's pretend, but you know what I'm saying, right? Like, but he's right there. I, you know what I'm saying? Uh, um, well, uh, we went to Disney also as a family in October. I think it's called the Fast Pass or whatever. We had the app. We were trying to, trying to make it happen. It would, it would make us wait less in line, right? And so what we experienced on this trip was, no, 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 no. We had someone walking with us. And so we, we didn't wait in line. That wasn't the thing. We didn't wait. We got ushered to the front. I, I, I feel bad for the folks. We got us to the front, and we, and we, and we wrote the rides. We, we, we got catered, and, and the experience was amazing. And also, did you know that, that Disney has a whole network of tunnels underneath, right? Because that's how the, the characters travel from things to things without being bothered by the folks, right? So we underneath, we was in the tunnels. We was with the folks. I was like, there go Donald Duck, right? This was the experience. Now, check this out. Now, if you looked at this experience... And you looked at my bank account. The way my bank account set up is not set up for this kind of experience. But check this out. But I was tethered to an organization that was spending millions of dollars with Disney, right? And because I was tethered to this organization, I didn't have the millions. They had the millions. And so, and so I had an opportunity to experience something that I couldn't experience on my own because I was tethered to them. Now you fast, now you rewind to when they called and, and, and asked me, Linda, would you go do this thing in this conference two years from now? What if I had said no? What if I had viewed that opportunity based on my own strength and what I felt that I could do? I would have missed out on, right? So this is this challenge with us is that sometimes what we, we, we regulate the activities of our lives based on what we feel like we can, we can do in our own power and our own strength. Instead of making up in our mind, no, I'm going to be obedient first and trust God to give me the grace second. And that's how we should live our lives. We need to trust in the fact that God is going to give us the grace to empower us to do the things that he wants us to do. Now, I got to leave that alone because that could be the whole rest of the sermon. But I'm going to stop. Here we go. 
So we learned that they also experienced grace. Great grace was among them all. And so we continue on. It says, and God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there were no needy persons among them. I love it here because what this is saying is the grace, you can read this like this. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all so that they were, there were no needy persons among them. So the grace enabled them to live in a way to where there were no needy folks among them. So there was no one needy. So this is the next thing that they experienced. There was, there was, there was no one needy among them. And so, so let me try to kind of give you the significance of this phrase because this is the first time this has come up in the Bible. It came up for the first time in Deuteronomy. So in Deuteronomy, it's the last book of the Torah. In Deuteronomy, these are Moses' his, his final words, okay? And what he's doing is, is there's the first generation of folks that had came out of Egypt, right? Um, and, but now they had, <clears throat> they uh, had lost, <coughs> sorry, sorry guys, they had lost their opportunity to go into the promised land. So in Deuteronomy, Moses is addressing the second generation, right? This is the generation now that's actually going to go into the promised land. And so what he's teaching about, he's teaching them about the covenant, the covenant relationship that the people of Israel have with God. And so also in Deuteronomy, he's, he's talking to them about they will be people of worship, right? He's talking about they will be people of worship. And so worship is worshiping in the temple, but he also constitutes worship as how you care for the poor that are among you. And this is what we have in Deuteronomy 1st chapter 14. I'll read it. It says, at the end of every three years, 1428, if you're, if you're with me, at the end of every three years, bring all the tithe of that year's produce and store it in your towns so that the Levites who have no allotment of inheritance of their own, and the foreigners, the fatherless, and the widows who live in your towns may come and eat and be satisfied. And so that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. So basically, this is a debate. Like, was there three different times? Was, was the time just in the third year meant to this? Either way it goes, what we have is the Lord saying, yo, I'm making provision for the fatherless. I'm making provision for the widow. I'm making provision for the poor. That in the third year, oh, they're going to eat. It's in the system. And then you go to uh, Deuteronomy chapter 15, verse 1, 2, and 4. It says, at the end of every seven years, you must cancel debts. This is how it is done. Every creditor shall cancel any loan they have made to a fellow Israelite. They shall not require payment from anyone among their own people because the Lord's time for canceling debts has been proclaimed. Verse 4, however, there were no poor people among you. <clears throat> for in the land of the Lord your God is giving you to possess as an inheritance, he will richly bless you. So these are the words that, that, the, that, that, that God spoke through Moses to the people when he's establishing this covenant with the second generation. And so now we're in Acts, and now we're in the new covenant, right? So that was the old covenant. So now Jesus is resurrected. We're in the new covenant, and his church, God's church, is being born, is being established, right? So, so God, it was important to God then, and it's still important to God here in the New Testament. So obviously we see God's heart for the poor, 
We see God's heart for the marginalized, so much so that he bakes into the system a way so that people will not continue to be poor. So that if they made the mistake, you'll get a second chance. And so if you're on the side of like, oh, um, uh, I had a debt and I've been forgiven, you're excited about this. But if you're on the other side, and if people owe you money, you may not be so happy about this. But we have to come to terms with the fact that this is God's heart. And so we see that, that even in this time, there was no needy among them. And so one more, one more real quick thing about that. Like I think about what we do in this church. I think about the prayer cards. I think about the ways that we express needs and people send me emails and things like that. Um, they didn't necessarily have that in that time. So how in the world did they come to have no one needy among them? Well, well, the folks that were needy actually had to share the fact that they had a need. I remember, uh, again, Jackie talked about the fact that, that a lot of people drown because they don't say anything when they're drowning. So this idea of the fact that, listen, if, if you are drowning, if you are in need, the people there were saying they expressed their need, right? They weren't too prideful to say, hey, here is what I need. And then on the other end, the folks had to be safe enough Right? For those people to express their need and to be receptive and then to move on the need that was then expressed. And so we have to ask ourselves a question are we, are we safe people? Are we people that won't judge people when they, when they, when they express their needs? Like, are, are we in an environment to where that, that can exist? But that's kind of what was going on there in the church. And so, lastly, we find this. We'll finish it up uh, in chapter 4, verses 34 to 37. And then it says this, and from time to time, those who own land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales and put, and put it at the apostles' feet. And it was dis- distributed to anyone who had need. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold the field. He owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. And so... So then we kind of get more of an idea of how this played out, right? In the fact that, that they would sell houses uh, and then bring that money to the disciples' feet. And so real quick, this is not something that was forced. This is not something that they, they had to do. Um, it was something that people did from time to time as the need arose, right? We get a, a window into that if you go into chapter 5. Because chapter 5, when Ananias and Sapphira, right, they sold their property um, and they gave the money to the disciples, but they held something back for themselves. Um, and the disciples was like, yo, why, why, why would you lie to God like that? I said, hey, wasn't the property yours when, when you, when, before you sold it? And then once you, once you sold it and got the proceeds, wasn't that money then yours as well? So why would you come and lie about, about how much you, you sold the house for, right? So, so we see that, hey, this wasn't obligatory. They didn't, they didn't have to do it. They, they did it as the need arose. So they were a great example. And then we have Barnabas, right, who enters the story, right? Barnabas, if you know, he's a prominent figure in the, in the, uh, in the New Testament in Acts, right, as him and Paul link up and, and began to minister to the Gentiles, right? And so they, Barnabas was such a, such a good dude. Uh, they just said, yo, we got to change your name. We're not going to call you Joseph. Your name's going to be Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, because you're a good dude. Because when nobody else was fooling with Paul, guess who was fooling with Paul? Barnabas. And he said, man, let's link up and make it happen. And so we see Barnabas making it happen. So then we have an example of, of how this all played out. And so listen, I'm so grateful that Luke has captured, man, what life was like in the Jerusalem church. I'm so thankful that, that we have this model of life 
in the church. But here's the thing, though. I don't think, though, that, that we truly see this as exemplary. I don't, I don't think we feel the weight of the expectation that we are to live up to this. And, and the reason I, I say that is because I think that we see what happened in Acts chapters 2 and 4, and we, we largely see it as uh, man, uh, um, unattainable, unreachable. And so we just, we just dismiss it. Like, uh, that, that, that's not something that we can actually achieve. And so we just, we just kind of dismiss it and, and not live up to, to that standard. So real quick, I, I did some research. And when you look at, when you look at the, the, the top 20 places in the world where Christianity is growing the fastest, uh, I will say this. It is not in Europe or uh, the North American countries, right? It's not happening there. The place where Christianity is growing the fastest is in Asia and in Africa, right? And in those places, I just think it's interesting that those are the places where you either have hostility towards the gospel or you have extreme poverty. And it was just, man, the Holy Spirit, the, the way that Tiffany earlier today was like, yo, um, um, people can't freely worship like this. This is not what people can do. And this is the reality for folks across the world. But yet, in these places, this is where Christianity is flourishing and growing the fastest. And so if you ask those people, those people in those places, if you ask them about Acts 2 and Acts chapter 4, I believe they would say, oh, yeah, that, that's totally reasonable because that's what's happening in our midst. In those countries where the, where the need is greatest, right, they're actually experiencing some of the things that we see in Acts chapter 4. So here's the deal. We have to understand and we have to make a decision on what kind of church are we going to be. Because right now, the church, we are known for um, being judgmental and being uh, uh, hypocritical and insensitive. Right now, the church is known more for, for hurting than it's known for, for healing. Right now, the church is seen as being weak and ineffective. And so we have to make a decision, what kind of church are we going to be? i tell another quick story. So I'm in my 40s, okay? And every time I say that to somebody in the crowd, it's like, oh, you're just a baby. And I'm like, how long am I going to be a baby? I've been hearing that for 40 years. I got gray hair in my beard. I tell somebody my struggles about being 40, are oh, you just a baby? I'm going to be 50 and people are still going to be telling me, are oh, you just a baby? Um, my aging journey is real. But listen, I'm 40, so my 40s are tearing me up. Here's why my 40s are tearing me up. Because I've already made an attempt to make some things different in my life. And I come to age 40, and I'm like, man, these things have not changed. And the sense that I have in my 40s is, man, if I don't do something different, even though I have a lot of life left, circumstances aren't going to be any more ideal for me to make the necessary changes in my life than they are right now. And if I don't do something different, the, the same things that I'm experiencing now, the same struggles I'm experiencing now, the same lack of attainment of goals that I'm experiencing now, when I'm 80 years old, it'll be the same way. And I'm having these thoughts as I'm experiencing people, people that I know, and I'm looking at their life. They're in the sunset of their lives, and I'm looking at them, and I say to myself, man, I know the Lord had more for you. So I'm seeing people who, who have missed an opportunity 
who the Lord definitely had more for them and their lives and their ability to be more spiritually mature as Christians and then no doubt experience a better quality of life as a result. And I'm looking at myself and I'm like, man, if I don't press in deeper, I'm going to be the same way in the next 40 years. It's not unrealistic. So then guess what I'm in the process of doing, y'all? I have to press in more to Jesus. I have to deny my flesh more. Because if I just do the same thing that I've been doing, then it's not going to produce anything different. And so I come to you all today, and I'm saying to y'all, what are we going to do, church? Because if we don't do something different, if we don't change the game, the same thing that's true for us now, hypocritical, judgmental, insensitive, ineffective, hurting more than healing, that'll be the same story for the church the next 40 years. And we have an opportunity to play our part and to be different. So we have to ask ourselves, what, what are we going to do? How, what are we going to do? How are we going to continue to move forward and make this happen? I got to flop through this next part. So here's the deal. So, so okay, so how are we going to do it then? How are, we, how are we going to then aspire to be like the early church? How, how are we going to make it happen, right? So if you look at the things the church did, right, right, they, they devoted themselves to teaching, fellowship, and generous. So I could just, you know, launch strategies and initiatives so that we can, we can keep doing that, right? I, that's what I could do. But if I do that, right, what that's going to produce, that's just going to produce religiosity, religious activity. We'll just be doing a bunch of external things, behavior modification. Some people are going to get hurt, and we're not going to be any different. Transformation is going to be minimal. So I'm not going to launch a strategy about uh, uh, launching Bible studies all over our church so we can be more devoted to Scripture. I'm not going to create a strategy so we can do life together and try to figure out who lives in what community here and there. That's not what I'm going to do. So if we looked at what they experienced, there's one thing in what they experienced that drove this whole thing, and that's them being of one, one heart and one soul. That's the thing that drives everything else. And here was the secret sauce of the church. The secret sauce of the church was this. They, they valued God and had affection for God over everything else. So real quick, so if you don't know, that's a greater than sign, okay? Um, <laughs> I'm a former math teacher, so I'm going to help you out today because there's going to be a couple switches back and forth. So we would talk about Pac-Man, right? So Pac-Man, if you look at Pac-Man, Pac-Man is going to eat the side that's greater, okay? So, so I'm going to just help you guys out. There's Pac-Man. So, so God, <laughs> teacher in me, right? Where Nicole at? Where Nicole at? Nicole, yeah, Nicole, see? Uh-huh. So, so, so God, right, they, their affections, affections, that lies at the heart level. Their affections for God was greater than anything else they had in their life. And so that's how they made it happen. And this is a challenge, and this is going to sound mean, but it's, it's real. Some of us think that this is us. But the reality is for many of us, it's not. Okay? And the reason you know it's not because you can look at the church. Because when this is the case, you're going to see what was happening in Acts 2. If you see what was happening in Acts 2, that devotion to Scripture, the fellowship, the generosity, if that's not a part of your life, then, then that's probably not likely true for you. And then that's okay. But then you have to ask yourself the question, so, so what are the things that, that, that I'm placing my affections in over God? What is that thing for you? Because here's what happens. Because when the, the Lord presents needs to you, when the Lord gives you an opportunity to respond, what will happen is your affections for something else will prevent you from responding to what's in front of you and being obedient. 
So you have to identify what's the thing in the blank for you. So for me, I'm going to just keep it 100 with you. For me, number one, what is it? Achievement. There's some things I'm trying to achieve. And not just because I like to achieve, there's some things I'm trying to do for my family's sake. There's some things I'm trying to do for my legacy's sake, for the Davis name. So for me, that robs me of my capacity sometimes to respond to what the Lord is having me to do. It takes up my attention. It takes up my thoughts and my efforts. And so instead of going one way, I'm going this way. I had someone that called me. Um, man, I'm so sad about this. One of my one of my old kids from Kansas City, he was like, Lil, man, I need to talk. He kept calling me. I, I kept ignoring because I was busy, had things going on. And the next thing I know, I'm getting messages from other people because he's in jail. And I'm asking myself, man, what if there was a conversation that I could have with Malik to keep him from doing something stupid that will land him in jail. But my affections for achievement made me go a different way and I didn't respond. Another thing for me is functional saviors, right? What do you mean functional saviors? What I'm saying is Jesus is the thing that's sustaining. Jesus is the thing that can, can only fill the void of the, the, sat, the thing that I'm longing for. And so, But I have chosen other things to satisfy me at certain times. And it's okay to, to go have a meal. It's okay to get some time alone. It's okay to watch them. It's okay to do these things. But some, for some of us, it's chronic. And if we don't do it, it's a problem. So I'm just letting you know, I got some functional savers that I'm intentionally saying, no, I don't need you. I just need Jesus. So Lord, give me the grace to leave that alone. So what is it for you? What is the thing for you? If you were to fill in the blank, what's the thing that you need to turn away from and, and so that your affections will increase for God. What's that thing for you? And what is it going to take for you to, for you to remove your affections from that thing and increase your affections for God? So it's helpful for you to identify what that thing is. Because if you don't identify, you're unlikely to make any changes in that area. Remember, planning, failing to plan is planning to fail. This is the part of that. So how do you take some time? To really look at your heart, to assess your heart, and, and ask yourself, what's robbing you of your affection of God? Because when the need arises, it's robbing you from the ability to respond, which actually is robbing you of your freedom, which I ain't got time to get into. But how do you take time to consider that? But for us as a church, when it comes to Acts 2, Acts 4, this is what H3 is all about, right? We have to figure out a strategy as a body, man. How do we move people closer to this? And that's what we're doing with home gatherings, challenging you. How do you engage the folks that, that are different from you? How do you engage the people that you see all the time, but yet you don't know them? Give you an opportunity to be like Jesus. That's what H3, that's what this whole thing is about. It's us shooting our shot so that we can be more and more and more following the example of what we saw in Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 4. So listen, why don't we stand? We're about to go. Real quick, you might be in here and you might not even have the capacity to receive anything I'm saying right now because of circumstances and challenges that you have in your life. So what I would say to you is, I would just want to invite you to the rescue. I want to invite you into a relationship with Jesus. Because of Jesus and his life, his death, and his resurrection, 
he has the ability to give us a life that, that's more than we can give ourselves. He has more for you than you can provide for you. And in knowing him and in following him, he leads you to that life. And so if you're here, if you're overwhelmed because your life has been in your hands, you have the opportunity to, to trust him and put it in his hands. Or if you're someone where the pressures of life are getting to you, right? He has the ability, when you follow him, to lead you through troubled waters, to lead you through the valley of the shadow of death and where you don't have to bear everything on your own. And so if that's you, I invite you to come. Please come to me, come to someone up front and share maybe a decision that you've made to follow Jesus. But for everyone else, man, I just encourage you guys to draw your affections to God. Whatever you, whatever you can do to, to turn away from the things that's robbing you of your affection to God, I challenge you to do it this morning, to do it this week. And then when you do it, I believe you'll experience grace. I believe you'll have power to do things that, that you didn't have the ability to do. I believe that you'll experience joy and gladness. I believe the Lord will enlarge your territory. I believe that you will experience growth. But most importantly, I believe that for this church, down the road as we look at the future, we will do our part to change the narrative of what the church is like. Because we'll have a body of believers of folks that's of one heart, that's of one soul, who have been changed and rescued by the resurrected Savior, Jesus Christ, and who have all submitted to his authority. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this day. We thank you for this opportunity to be here and to worship freely. Now, God, may we dream about, Lord, what this church can be. Lord, may we dream about this church and the fact that it could be a church where we're devoted to your teaching, where we're devoted to each other, and we have radical generosity as we meet the needs of everyone in this place and then we come in contact with. So, Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit would convict us of the areas that's robbing us of our affection from your Father, God in heaven. And, Lord, would you grant us the grace? Would you empower us to turn our affections and to only gaze upon your son, Jesus. So, Lord, we thank you, we love you, and we pray that you would be with us as we leave this place, that we would keep our eyes fixed on you, and that we wouldn't determine our actions by what our power can do, but that we would determine to be obedient and trust you to give us what we need to make it happen. So we thank you, Lord. We love you. We pray all these things in your son, Jesus' name. Amen. Good to be with you all. Grace and peace. We'll see you next week.